0: Hello everyone and welcome to a special episode of The Dumble Speak. I'm Roy. Today we're going to do something a little different. It's a bonus episode. This is a message that Chaylen preached a couple of months ago that I've been wanting to get on the podcast. So it's a two-parter. We'll have the first part today and then I'll post the second part later. I hope you will enjoy this. Let's get to it and hear Chaylen speak. Well, good morning this glad to see everybody out this morning. Like I said, it is a joy to be here. If you have your Bibles, be turning to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, we're going to be reading verses 17 through approximately 32. We will see how far we get this morning, how far we get through the message. But let's read the text before us, have a prayer, and then we'll get right into uh, the message this morning. But the high priest rose up along with the associates that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out and said, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered the temple about daybreak, and they began to teach. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison, the prison house, for them to be brought out. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. They returned and reported back, saying, we have found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened up, we found no one inside." Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about, uh, about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. When they brought them, they stood, stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, "'We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, "'and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, "'intending to bring this uh, this man's blood upon us.' But Peter and the apostles answered, "'We must obey God rather than men. "'The God of our fathers raised up Jesus.' whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as the prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Father, we come to you today. We come to you today just very thankful for this opportunity to be able to be in your house, be able to study your word, and just take a look at how marvelous you really are. We cannot thank you enough for the grace that you give us. We cannot thank you enough for the mercy that you show us. And we pray today that you illuminate the path before us as we look at this portion of Scripture, that we glean out of it what you may, and we'll ask it all in your precious Son Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In the book of Acts... There is an explosion of evangelism. The book of Acts is just nothing more than this explosion of evangelism of the early church. See, the church grows organically through the church. It grows from believers like ourselves, placed in the world, to be evangelists. We are to spread the gospel to everyone. And it grows organically. As I said, it grows from within. See, we are not immediately taken to heaven once we are saved, once we come into a relationship with Christ. We are not immediately taken to heaven. And why is that? There's work to do. We are not taken because we are to evangelize the very world before us. Paul, in the book of Romans, he writes, How will they... How then will they call on him, that being Jesus, in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they're sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news of good things. So often we hear of the finished work of Christ. We know what he cried out upon the cross. He cried out, it is finished. And it is, when we think, that finished work, the atoning work that is done. But there is a work that was only started by Christ. It was merely began. In Matthew 28, we read the words of the Great Commission. It tells us to go make disciples. We are to make disciples by teaching them, instructing them the words that are written. That work is what Christ only began upon his time in earth. And that work, that calling of his elect, calling of his people, is left for us to evangelize and spread the gospel. This work continues through the apostles in the book of Acts. And it continues through the early church as we see written. And in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 we see that but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. At Pentecost this comes true. At Pentecost, this comes true when we see languages being spoken. All these different tribes are gathered together. They hear them in their own language. Thousands are converted in the early church. They are coming to Christ. Christ, the elect, is being drawn. They are being drawn back in. And the Spirit of God came and empowered the believers. And has continued to empower us to this day. When we believe, when we are in Christ, we are indwelt with his Holy Spirit. And see, this explosion happens in the book of Acts. This evangelist explosion. Miracles are happening. Healings are happening. People are being converted. It doesn't take long for the naysayers to show up. It doesn't take those that are against the gospel long to rear their ugly heads. In Acts chapter 4, the Apostle Peter and John are placed upon trial. They are placed for trial for preaching the gospel. But in chapter 5, we begin to see the cleansing of the church. See, God desires a pure church. He desires a church that is pure. Are there wheat? Are there tares amongst the wheat? Absolutely. But he still desires a cleansing of the church. In the first part of Acts chapter 5 verse 1, we see the story of Ananias and Sapphira. As this church, the early apostles, begin to gain popularity... As they're seeing these miracles take place, as they're seeing them preach before these people, they want in on the action. They want in on the action, they want in on the popularity that is coming. They sell property. But when they sell property, they lie to the Holy Spirit, and sin enters into the early church. It creeps in. To the church. Church discipline is applied, but it's applied in a divine nature, a supernatural nature. Does church discipline happen today? This church discipline happened according to today. If God desires this pure church, he wants his church to be pure. He wants it to be holy. He wants it to be seeking after him. But today the church is very lenient upon its discipline. It's very lenient upon its discipline of believers. From the modern church, frankly, from the early 20th century on, Sin has been allowed to take over the church. It's been allowed to take over under the zeitgeist of numerical. Focus purely upon the numbers that set in the pews. We have allowed sin to creep in. Sin is overlooked. And growth by numbers is considered a blessing. But not growth spiritually. Not growth in the learning and the knowledge of scripture and God and his holy word. And we simply dismiss sin. And we dismiss it as it just seems to be their nature. Does anybody see the problem with this? Does anybody see the problem that we've done? But God in the book of Acts in chapter 5, he acts supernaturally. And he deals with it. They are taken out immediately. We also see this in the book of Corinth, the church of Corinth. Sin enters into the Lord's table and there is, they are taken out around the Lord's table. Death enters in. The apostle John writes, there is a sin unto death. There is a time when you as a believer are such a hindrance to God that he reserves that right. Does God still deal with it supernaturally today? We said there's a sin and a death, but we are also given a pattern. We are given a pattern. We are to go to that brother that sins. If that doesn't work, then we are to take two or more witnesses with us. If that doesn't work, then you can take them before the church, and there perhaps may be even a time when they are set outside the body. Gone is church discipline. Gone are the days when sin is sin. Gone are the days that we as Christians should strive for a holy, godly congregation and church. See, I honestly believe a church that practices discipline will be a church that flourishes. People desire it. People want it. See, too many times we're told that I don't want to go to church because it's full of the hypocrites. If we gloss over sin, then it will be full of tears. It will be full. But later in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, after the divine church discipline that God institutes, in verse 11, you see that great fear came over the whole church and all who overheard it. Those who got involved and were in the early church were serious. They knew the ramifications that would come if they did not follow the, the church, if they did not act godly. And for the first time in verse 12, we see they are in one accord. They are in one accord, and they are being purified. But then that takes us to where we are. In Acts 17, our chapter, uh, verse 5, our chapter 5, verse 17, all of this goes on. The church is flourishing. The church is being purified. There is a power that's coming, a, a, a miracle's being performed. Verse 17, we see the capture. We see them captured right off the bat. But the high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. In Acts chapter 4, verse 6, we're introduced as uh, Ananias as the high priest. Caiaphas, historically, is rendered the high priest. Ananias is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, but he's kind of the de facto head here. He is the one that controls what is being done. He is the puppet master, if you will. And it says he rose up. Doesn't mean that he simply got up out of his chair. It doesn't mean that he stood up, but he stood up as though he jumped out of a chair very quickly because he was filled with rage and anger. He was enraged at these apostles. See, I want you to remember this. Persecution is inevitable. Persecution of the church is predictable. Persecution of the church is coming. I'm not talking about locally, though it may. But if we were to look at a 30,000 foot view of the world, we see persecution throughout. The Christians in China must meet underground. Persecution is coming. We cannot avoid it in some form. Though persecution may be not that such that takes your life, it may be something that costs you your job. It may be something that costs you friends. It may be something that cost you um, that promotion. It may be something that cost you that, but persecution is coming because the world simply hates Jesus. Those that are lost hate Jesus. And John, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hates you. Persecution is inevitable. And when they persecute us, it's not us per se that they are persecuting. It is Jesus. It is Jesus whom they. But he stands up. This high priest stands up out of anger with all his associates. They use the word here to describe the Sadducees as the sect of Sadducees, it is the very word where we get our word heresy from. These false teachers, these false teachers in the temple, these ones that are heretics, stand up. And it says they are jealous. They are filled with jealousy. That is zelu in the Greek, means anger. But really, they were just filled with indignation. They were outraged at them. They cannot stand the explosive nature that is going on. They cannot stand the explosive power that the Christian church has during this early time. They were completely zealous of this new movement. They wanted it to stop. They wanted it totally stamped out because it exposed them as a complete farce. It exposes them as the falseness that they are. These Sadducees, they were the collaborationist leaders of Israel if you will. They were a very small minority, very wealthy, very influential. They were separate from the Pharisees. They were the theological liberals of the day if you will. They were collaborated with Rome. They were the puppets of Rome. They wanted to keep peace with Israel to keep Rome off of their back. And they ruled and they wanted this wildfire absolutely crushed. They hated this movement. Their place of honor, if you read scripture, you'll see the Pharisees, they liked their place of honor at banquets in the temple. They liked those places of honor. But then when they captured them, it says they laid hands on the apostles and put them in public jail. The popularity of the apostles and the lack of any public charge from the Pharisees, from the Sanhedrin, has protected them thus far. But the apostles cannot continue to openly defy the orders from the Sanhedrin, from the, the court, the Supreme Court, if you will, of Israel. They cannot go on being defiant to it without some sort of ramification. See, the leaders of of this council, they must act, they must act quickly, or they must accept this new movement. They're never going to accept it. Because if they accept it, they will lose face with the people, and that is not what they want in any way, shape, form, or fashion. Matters at this point have escalated to the point at which the, the honor is greatly threatened of the Pharisees. They are losing complete control that they have over the people. Over the control that they have, they are losing it. And they lay hands on them in a hostile manner. And they place them in this terrible public jail. It's not a pretty place. They put them there to shame them, to bring shame upon their name. But the apostles view it as a badge of honor. They are being persecuted in the name of Jesus. It is a badge of honor for them to wear. But during the night, verse 19, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out. Divine intervention. Luke doesn't see this as Jesus, this angel of the Lord. You know, the main agent he sees throughout here moving is the Holy Spirit, so I don't want you to get it confused with the angel of the Lord here uh, being the Old Testament version of that. You know, and it's kind of ironic, as we read through Scripture, especially the book of Acts, jail is never a problem for God. When people are placed in jail, it's never an issue for him to be able to get them out at need be. Satan places them in jail, has them placed in jail from the worker of his hand, but God will overrule it for his glory. For his glory he will. Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 16. They come upon the demonic girl who's making money for her masters. They cast the demon out of the demonic girl. The owners of this girl are furious. They are completely enraged at Paul and Silas. They are thrown into jail. During the night, an earthquake opens the jail. Did they get up and run out of the jail? They are singing praises to the Lord. The jailer would have killed himself because it was a death sentence to lose the prisoners. They yell out and cry out, "Harm, do yourself no harm. We're, still, we're all still here. And his whole household is converted. The jailer and the household are converted. Jail is not a problem for God. So they place them in, thinking they've done it. I can imagine them now, that's it, we've got them locked up, that'll get rid of the the movement. That'll stamp it out. It's over with, it's done until we choose to let them out. Boy, do they find out they're wrong. But there is irony bound up in this. There is so much irony bound up in this He tells that an angel got them out. Two schools of thoughts with the Sadducees. They did not believe in the uh, resurrection. I remember one of my cousins telling me this. You may have heard this. If you have, I'm sorry for the corniness of it. but The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. Some historians say they were buried face down. And so she would always tell me that they don't believe in the resurrection. The way you can remember that is you can remember it built up in their, it's built within their name. It is sad, you see. That was always the way you could remember that they didn't believe in the resurrection. But he sends this angel. They do not believe in the resurrection, but also they do not believe in angels. They do not believe in angels nor the resurrection. And God, what does he do? Sends an angel to get the apostles out of jail to do what? Preach the resurrected Christ. If that is not irony, I do not know what is. God, as if he just slaps them in the face in a way, if you could. He literally does the two doctrines that they do not affirm. And he uses them both. Then they get their orders. They get their orders in verse 20. Taking them out, the angel tells them, Go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of life. The angel gets them out of the prison. They're now out. They're free. They're escaped. Does he tell them, Boys, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find a cave in the mountain." I'm going to give you some food. I'll supply with you enough. Let it cool down. No. Go. Stand in the temple and preach the resurrection. The very place where it started, the very place where they got arrested, the angel tells them to go back to that very spot. That is our orders. That is our orders as believers is to proclaim the resurrection. That there is life and life abundant in Jesus Christ. And that is what we are to preach and do. See, they are in the very heart of where heresy is now being taught. Where heresy is taught, but they simply obey the angel's command. They don't ask why. They don't ask, is it too dangerous? It may seem reckless to us. It is audacious. But they are obedient to the commandment. They are obedient to the orders because sometimes, sometimes, Preaching the gospel comes at a cost. When you preach the gospel to self righteous people, they do not like it. They do not like it at all. In the temple, the people are being robbed by the Pharisees, widows are being extorted from their inheritance. Personal theology is raised above the theology of God. Power is being abused. But he tells them to go there and preach. We should be more like the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul says, I am determined to know no one among you except what? Christ and him crucified that should be our life goal our life aim but what does he tell them to preach what does he tell them to do preach the whole message of life what is christianity what is the very message of christianity it is life abundant life eternal life in the living son of God. Go to the temple. Preach to the spiritually dead men that are in that temple. Jesus has come to give life to those that are spiritually dead. If you have seen the Son, what do you have? Life. I'm perplexed sometimes when people tell me that Christ is the center of their life. I'm perplexed when they say that. I honestly believe that is a statement of error. We are in Christ. Everything about our life is Christ. We are not, he is not the center of our life. He is the essence of our life. Jesus said of himself, I'm the resurrection and the life. Because I live, you live. He says in John chapter 14, I am the way, I am the truth, and what? I'm the life. But then after that, in verse 21, we encounter what happens and the consternation of the Pharisees at this point. The crowds are gathering in the temple for the morning sacrifice. The apostles have zero concern for their safety. They are simply just obedient. There are times in the book of Acts when they flee. Peter flees in Acts chapter 12. He flees again in Acts chapter 21, I believe it's 18, just before the execution of James. But they're back in the temple doing exactly what they told them not to do. And the leaders... This council is absolutely clueless to the events that have transpired. How out of touch are they with the people? Upon hearing this, they entered the temple and began teaching at daybreak. And now when the high priest associates came, they called the council together, even all of the Senate of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. Really, this is just two ways to describe the same group. That's the Sanhedrin the elders of Israel, the older, mature, influential, experienced leaders, and essentially it's the Supreme Court. These rulers have expected the apostles to obey. They have locked them in the prison. It's over with. It's out of sight, out of mind. We're going to deal with them in the morning. They have no clue what's transpired in the temple. They are out of touch with the people. See, they're simply in the shadows of all this conducting business. But the entire group is about to suffer great embarrassment but the officers who came did not find them in the prison and they returned back and reported (laughs) can you imagine the confusion can you imagine the concern the prisoners that we put here are now gone they're concerned for their safety this is a certain death sentence if you lose a prisoner they come back and here's the report we found the prison House locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the door. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Did you imagine it? Think about it in today's terms if you have a problem at work, if you have a problem with your boss, and you, you walk in and you immediately begin the formalities before you do anything else. Do you have a good weekend? How's the wife? How's the kids? Well, you look like you've lost a little weight today, boss. No. I could imagine it as they did it. I mean, we locked it. We checked the padlocks. We we checked everything about this. It's locked as securely as it possibly can be. The guards are still in their spot. They're still standing where we left them last night, but they're gone. We have no idea where they're at. We, we have no earthly idea what has happened. This miraculous, astounding event. This, is, this supernatural work is happening. God is showing his divine nature. Just the shock that would happen. Now my question is, have they committed the unpardonable sin? Are they beyond redemption at this point? Because their heart is so hard, they never consider Any of this. They never consider divine intervention. They never consider God's work at this. They think somebody most likely would have come in and released them, helped them. There was help in it. But see, panic sets in in verse 24. Now when the captain of the guard, the temple guard, the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. Panic sets in panic-stricken, now the chief of police is involved that says they're perplexed, that's really mild if we were translating it, they were literally on the verge of going bonkers. They are at their wits in with these guys. They are losing it. I thought of my girls when we go to a pool or we go somewhere, and they always kind of got an inflatable float or something. And they try to place this float in the water. And then the goal is to see how long they can hold the float underwater. As soon as they let go of it, it pops back up. To me, that's the apostles. They keep trying to shove the apostles underwater. Every time they pop back up, these guys will not go away for nothing. They keep popping up as they stamp it out. They keep popping up all over the place. And then someone from not inside this council, in this Sanhedrin, reports it. But someone came, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Now they've escaped. They're a lot more dangerous to the Sanhedrin. Some translations translate this as behold, or basically, you're not going to believe this. The guys you put in jail, they're in the temple. Boldness. It's what we are called to be. We are called to be bold in our sharing of the gospel. Bold in the very face of persecution. Bold in the very face of adversity. Bold when it appears like everything is against us, we are to be bold and press forward. If we are told not to preach the gospel, what do we do? We preach Christ and him crucified. We are to be bold. Then the captain he goes along with the officers and brings them back without violence. Brings them back without violence doesn't mean they were not infuriated at these apostles. They are furious with them. They are burning with anger. They had, in reality, just as soon to rip them limb from limb. They are tired of dealing with it. So then you ask what restrains them? What restrains this anger? One thing the people are listening to the teaching of the apostles they're being healed thousands are being added and the jews they had a hair trigger they were stone happy taking away the ones that are healing the sick the ones that are convert the, the conversions that are being done what they're hearing they would have stoned them at a drop of a hat The apostles, though, go without any restraint, without any problems. Imagine the conversation. We're going to need you to play it cool. We don't want a scene. We don't want anything to go on. We just need you to come with us. We want to talk to you. The apostles could have dug in at this very moment and said, we're not going. We will not go with you. But they go. Why do they go? Because they know God is sovereign in the situation. They know God is sovereignly working through this situation. If they would have resisted, it would have caused a violent protest. I don't know if any of you have really watched the news of late. There's a church on our northern border that has been shut down for preaching and teaching the gospel. It's the church in uh, Alberta, I believe it is. It's Grace Life, I think is the name of it. The cops come in and they three they, they, they met against orders and then they three-tiered their fence. I guess you could say there were three fences that encompassed this, the perimeter of this church. Some of the non-Christians, we'll say, in the area began tearing the fence down. So what does Grace Life Church do in that face of persecution? The apostles here don't want to outcry they don't want to they don't want a violent mob the church in canada stands in front of the fence as to not let them tear it down they don't want it done in a matter of anger they want it done properly and peaceful and then they're going to take them back they're going to take them back before the sanhedrin before the council. I imagine Peter forming his outline as he goes. See, Paul many times had been faced with persecution under his trial with Festus. The Jews have accused him, and he responds, I've done nothing against the Jews. I'm a Roman citizen. If you're going to try me, you better do it before Caesar. And then in Acts 25, he says, If then I am a wrongdoer, If I have committed anything worthy of death, I I do not refuse to die. But if none of these things is true, of which these men accuse me, no one can hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. In common terms, I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. I just obey the Lord. If the consequences are death, then I die. Just pure obedience. And what are we to do I'm gonna wrap it up right here. I'm gonna take your notes, make a notebook. Next time I preach, we'll walk through the remainder of this verse, just kinda of, or the remainder of this chapter, just kinda of make a note, and we're gonna finish right here. What are we to do if the government commands us to do something? We are to obey. But when the government contradicts the commandments of the Lord, we are to obey him first. If the government tells us then we are to be put for death for preaching the, the gospel and teaching, then we simply are to die. We are to face the ramifications. It's okay, frankly. If they kill us for those matter, it is a glorious thing. Philippians, Paul, for me to live in Christ, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's a promotion, if you will. See, we're not in the world. We're not, we are in the world, but we're not of it. We love our families, and we want to see them. We want to see our friends. But our heart's burning desire to, to, should be to be with the Lord in glory. The Lord in heaven and that eternity. And Paul had told the court, If I'm doing anything wrong, then I will take my penalty. What happens to Paul? What happens to Paul on that journey? They tell him, you're going to get to go to Rome. The entire trip, he preaches. He preaches from the beginning to the end. They have a shipwreck. The the crew members on the ship are terrified of drowning. He has the words of life for everyone. Later on in the book of Acts, there's the snake bike incident. And again, he gets to display the power of God. Then he gets to Rome. And at the end of Acts, he is a prisoner in Rome. Is he full of self-pity in the dumps? Is he beating himself up? No, he is expounding and testifying the kingdom of God and he persuading them that concerning Jesus. He did it all day. He did it all the time while he was a prisoner in Rome. And it says later, And some believed there are conversions in the midst of this crisis. Acts 28 says he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him. He was a soldier or he was a prisoner chained and shackled to a Roman soldier for 2 years preaching the kingdom of God to teaching the things about Jesus with all openness was there any results did anything happen Philippians at the end of that letter he signs it this way all the saints greet you listen to the last part especially those of Caesar's household. Paul gets in trouble. God uses it for his glory. Paul didn't resist. He had the right attitude in the face of persecution. What's our attitude in the face of persecution? We sang How Great Thou Art this morning. And honestly, this week... That church that I told you about in Canada, they are now underground. Their building is closed. They cannot meet at their regular scheduled church building. They cannot meet there. There was a video of them on YouTube at the end of the service, at the close of the service. The most beautiful thing, glorious thing I have ever heard. If you haven't watched it, I recommend that you find it and watch. I have no idea how many people, There's two gentlemen on stage. They're playing guitars. And this crowd of I don't know how many, it sounds packed, is singing at the top of their lungs, How Great Thou Art. In the face of persecution, can we still sing How Great Thou Art? Persecution is inevitable in some way, form, or fashion. But we must be bold in the face of persecution. The next time, we will try to wrap this up. Next time, whenever that may be, you guys, have a good week. Okay, well, we thank you for listening to this special episode of will Speak. We will return shortly with a follow-up part two of Jaylen's uh, message, and we hope you enjoy it. Thank you, and God bless.